You're listening to GNU World Order episode 26 for day 174 of 2019. I'm still largely computerless. I mean, I obviously have some recording device here because you're hearing my voice, but it's it's just my work laptop. I'm still waiting for my my normal computers to arrive on the South Island where I have moved to in order that I might continue our tour of, of the Slackware operating system. So we're not doing that today, but what we're going to do today is we're going to take some listener feedback because I got some good ones and and even if I didn't have some good ones I would I would take listener feedback if any any feedback is appreciated after that we'll talk about bash loops but I want to talk about uh, four four loops specifically and the different methods by which you might implement such a thing so first listener comment uh, listener feedback comes from Scott and Scott says greetings Klaatu your comments about metadata in episode 1325, that was just the previous episode, interested me because I've had my own struggles with it. I make a ton of audio files for my students, and it took me some time to create a good workflow for adding metadata to those files. In addition, I end up editing the metadata of most of the audio files I obtain from other sources because the files either have no metadata or their metadata is not thought out very well or it's messed up. For instance, if I'm listening to a podcast series, then I probably want to listen to its episodes in a certain order. If the producer of the podcast didn't think carefully about the metadata, it might be whatever player I'm using plays the episodes in the wrong order. I have to take the time to edit the metadata of every podcast series I download so that episodes are played in the correct order. Finding an application that can be used to efficiently edit metadata is also a big issue. After considering many options, including command line options, I finally settled on KID3 for the editing of audio file metadata. KID3 is the only audio file metadata editor I've found that shows all the metadata of an audio file, and it works great when I need to edit multiple files at the same time. I wouldn't need to edit the metadata of your GNU World Order AUG files, except for one small thing. If you install KID3 and open up, say, the AUG file for episode 1325, you see that the tags for title, artist, album, and genre all appear twice. If I didn't get rid of the repeats, then the title and others is repeated when I open the file in VLC, which is annoying. Also, since 1325 is not a single number, then the track number that VLC shows it is just 13. Similar things happen in other players. Another issue I have with audio file metadata is that it cannot be seen when the file is playing using a web browser like Firefox. I know of no web browser that permits one to see any metadata contained in an audio file. Same goes for images. Perhaps browsers don't need this feature, but it would be nice to have. So this is um, really great feedback on a couple of different levels. And he says that, first of all, he comments on the metadata of this show. And it's interesting because I, I took him up on the, the dare and opened up GNU World Order 13x25.org in KID3. And he's right. All the metadata appears twice. It's weird. I mean, like, literally twice in the field. There's GNU World Order underscore 13x25 space dash space GNU World Order underscore 1325. So something in my script generating these files is 
happening. It's either appending this information to the field, or or it's echoing it twice into the field. I'm not sure. I will have to look at that. I I got curious after doing that and looked at the Opus file, which I really do these days consider the canonical version of this show, just because Opus for for the size of the download and the quality of the sound, it really is superior to any other format. There's just it's really hard to argue that point now. If you look and if you if you play around with Opus long enough, you will find that everything you do in Opus simply outperforms AUG speaks, certainly something like MP3, but Opus the tags are, are fine, so they, the title appears normal, the artist appears normal, the album appears normal. Now the, the question of the track numbers is is a problem, and I probably need to adjust this, and it was one of those situations where I'd started out, I'd started the show before really comprehending how computers processed numbers, and I thought it seems like perfectly acceptable notation to do the season and then an X and then the the episode number. That just seemed reasonable to me at the time. Um, turns out it's not really the best, and I think the, the smarter thing would be to just put the season number and then the episode number. So, in other words, this this episode would be 1,326 because it's the 26th episode of season 13. I mean, really, if I had to do it, if I had to do it all over again, I'd I'd just stop doing seasons at all, really, and just do episode numbers. But I kind of, I've I've got tradition and convention now, so I'm I'm hesitant to change anything uh, about about how I denote the show numbers and so on. Although realistically, I don't know how many people actually care or or, or base you know any any kind of reference off of off of the way that I do the show so I'm, I'm not sure if that's really worth clinging on to either way I think maybe changing the way that I put the the track order and the song order would probably be a good idea so I will look into that Scott and thanks for thanks for highlighting that for me and KID3 is very good um, KID3 is the default one that I go to as well. I don't, I don't actually use it. I use it more for a reference, because generally, I mean, I mean for this show rather, for this show it's all scripted. The, the 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 metadata, the encoding, and all that other stuff, it's all scripted. So I just I just run a script. So I can adjust the script, and then that will change how how it appears in music players. And I will work on that, but I'll probably have to wait until I get my computers back in order to work on it, because my, my master copies are on my Slackware machine, and that's not what I'm using right now. And and I should mention, in case you're not running a KDE desktop, which I don't on my, on my work machine, EasyTag is a pretty good application. It, it, it gets really close to what KID3 can do. So check that out if you're if you're on a GTK based environment, or if you want to be on a GTK based environment. So that's um, that's sort of commentary about the state of the metadata of this show. But I think there's a a broader statement to be made here, and that is first of all the fact that this discussion is happening 
indicates to me that metadata is a is is inefficient. It's it's not working as well as it could. There 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 should have it sh shouldn't take someone the added effort to open up to install and open up an ID three application to to sort of do a dummy check of their metadata. That indicates to me that it's broken. It's a broken system. The fact that I didn't even realize that I was doubling up all the metadata on all the OG files that I produce says to me that metadata is not, isn't a thing. It's not there. It's not in front of our faces. And so it's very difficult to, to check, to verify, and so on. And the fact that people post photographs online and their photos contain all kinds of metadata about what they, what they, what they've done, where they've been, what they used. It's to me that's just, it's, it's annoying. It really is. No wonder people hate metadata or don't want to think about metadata or don't even know, as Scott says at the end of his email, which I didn't really, didn't read. A lot of people don't even really understand that metadata exists. I mean, people may understand some things about metadata, but they don't really process how it works, how it gets there, why it's there. And that's annoying to me. That 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 indicates, I think, that the, the metadata system is not optimized. Scott's other point about trying to find an application that actually shows him all the metadata that he wants to see is 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 worth making as well, I think, because you're you're not guaranteed to see the metadata that that's in a file. If, for instance, if there's a version one tag on a file, and you've got an application that has been designed to deal with version two of those tags, then you may very well only see version two tags, not realizing that there's also version one tags on the file. That's pretty annoying. And then of course there's the whole issue of there not really being standardized tags across formats within this within the same sort of realm so if we continue on with the audio files for instance an mp3 file let's say might have a track rather a tag called i don't know number and aug file might have a a field called track number so the the key and value pairs in other words aren't necessarily the same from format to format Aug is kind of an interesting case, actually, because its fields are, are quite flexible. And there's a proposed minimal field list with common things like title, album, track number, artist, copyright, license, genre, and so on. But you can add your own. You can and you can double up on on fields. So if there are two artists recording uh, in a recording, you, you can you can add them separately. So artist equals foo and artist equals bar is perfectly acceptable. But I don't know how most music players would deal with that. So you've got the metadata, and then you've got what the applications that are using metadata expect, and those two might not match up. It's a mess, in other words. It really is a mess. And it's just shocking to me that we haven't gotten this sorted. And, and by we, I mean software. I don't just mean free software. I mean all software. I just, I'm shocked that we, that I guess, I feel like if we were serious about metadata, then we would be doing this differently. And the fact that, that I, 
guess all metadata really is for is for some some convenience in a music player or a photo uh, a serious professional level photo editing application that's that's really as far as i can tell that's what metadata is is used for and and it seems like we've all just sort of we've gotten just so far with metadata and then then we kind of dropped it it's like well it works it works for most people most of the time in most applications let's just let's abandon this line of thought and that's annoying to me because th there are other ways to do metadata that wouldn't involve giving up the way that we've apparently given up so here's here's one from Ephraim from uh, Mastodon he says Clatu, about metadata, my wife and I have a YouTube channel, and we download and use Creative Commons music, especially in the intro and outro. If we have foo.org, then we create a file, foo.txt, next to it, with some metadata about the author, title, download, location, and license, and a line at the bottom. Our intro music, foo bar by Baz, is licensed cc by 3.0, and can be found here, link to vendor. No guessing, no special programs. It was easier for us to add the metadata as a separate file than to figure out how to tag the original file and which programs could display it easily. That's an indictment of metadata, am I right? I mean, that, that kind of thing is... is it, it shows exactly how metadata has failed us. It's easier to just roll your own solution in the form of a text file with the same name as the as the the entity you are quote unquote tagging and that's and that's your metadata and you can see this elsewhere there there for instance if you if you're hosting a media server like at home I, I did this for a little while and I intend to do it again but if you if you've got a media server where you've got all your all your DVD rips and all the media that you've downloaded and all all this stuff on a computer and you've got the computer hooked up to your television and maybe you're you have a a front end to that like Cody formerly XBMC then then or or even Plex so these I don't know if Plex is even open source anymore but Cody is so let's go with Cody so Cody by default will look at a, for a directory with the name of a movie appended by the year that it was made in parentheses and in that directory it looks for the same name with a movie extension to find the media and then the same name with the dot info dot info for all of the metadata and info dot dot in info is it, it's a sort of semi-formalized or maybe it's maybe it's formalized set of metadata specifically for media being used by by various media players and it's really really useful and it's just an external file and people put their fields and their their key and value pairs into a .info file and it just you know everyone sort of all the media players out there know to look for that and that works really well and traditionally you 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 will have found that music has a certain structure that a lot of audio players used to know to look for a certain a certain pattern so it, it would know that you would name your tracks by artist underscore or track title track number 
uh, album underscore artist or, or artist underscore album or, or whatever. And there was this kind of, I, th I think that was a very non-formalized sort of syntax for file names that that media players sort of knew to look for and knew how to parse that title to give you intelligent information about about the thing. So it's a very sort of in-your-face kind of metadata system, which maybe, yeah, maybe that wasn't the most graceful because it ended up having, you know, 30-character-long track titles. But at the same time, it was there, right? You could actually see it. It was something that you could look at and say, well, that's where the metadata is coming from. And if there's a track out of order or something, then I'll go into that file, or I'll rather, I'll, I'll go to that file name, and I'll correct it right there. And it's, it's, there's no... There's no mystery about it. It's very, very obvious. I guess what I'm saying is that, in a way, metadata is the difference between plain text config files and binary config files. If you're a Linux user, you understand the significance of that. So anyway, that's I think that's everything on metadata that I have. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Let's just put it that way. Um, let's see. So here's here's something from Murph on Mastodon. He says, I was listening to New World Order, had a comment about the um, carrot H tale you were telling. It was additionally used, so this is um, this, this is the, the thing I was talking about in, in um, what was it, Groff or Info or some application that, that we were looking at. Oh, Call. Uh, I think it was one of the column applications. And it had the um, the carrot h character, and I was I was wondering why there was were these backspace characters in in the file, and people have since told me, oh, that's so that the printer would back up and print that character over itself to create a bold effect. Now Murph says uh, it was additionally used as a sarcastic slash funny commentary based on quote accidentally unquote using it on systems like Usenet or FidoNet back in the day. For example, bad actions by micros carrot h carrot h carrot h carrot h carrot h. An unnamed Seattle software company cannot be excused. Used to falsely erase the real thought and replace it with something more palatable, but exposing it by mistakenly deleting it. So in other words, if it doesn't come out through reading, he's saying that the carrot h sequence was used as a strike through or, or as we often use strike throughs today or we did like five years ago i don't know if people still do that but you've seen the articles online where they say oh i really hate the evil corporation and then they'll strike evil corporation out and say open source friendly corporation called Microsoft, something like that, right? So just using Microsoft arbitrarily as the the easy target, right? So I mean, we could eat, just as easily say Apple. So don't don't panic. Um, the strike through is meant to obviously sort of reveal what the author is actually saying. Strike through, new statement. So it's kind of that meta. <laughs> um, it's that meta content of of this is what I really wanted to say but I won't say it, and here's what I'm really saying. So since you don't really have a strike through in a lot of text-based media, traditionally, um, I mean like ASCII text-based media, um, people would 
would would write something and then write control h control h control h control or not control but you know the caret symbol uh control h control h control h and you would think oh i get it they're they're backspacing to replace what they've just deleted with some other term now i've seen that personally that that's that's a tradition that did overlap my sort of awareness of of computation like i was into computers when some of that was happening it it probably at the tail end but but the the control h tradition it struck me is kind of it's kind of a beautiful little hacker culture note that that uh, i'm glad murph brought to my attention because it is one of those things that we can reasonably expect it will fade away as kind of a joke i think it's it's already faded away. I think if I did that, for instance, on Mastodon, I don't think everyone would understand what that was referring to. I mean, some people might. Some people might glean it from context, because if you if you write something and then control H, control H, control H, and then something similar but different, then then people might might understand. Okay, the control H's are to represent backpedaling or something like that. They might get it but they may not really get it. And it is one of those things that, yeah, and unless you've used, for instance, I think the way that I really learned about Control-H as a character sequence was in traditional Emacs, where you don't have a backspace key, or you didn't have a backspace key. I've got a .emacs file so convoluted at this point that I don't remember what the defaults are. But at some point, there was no backspace key, or, or, or the, 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 the way that the backspace, backspace key behaved was different than what you would expect, something like that. And I think at one point I had been using uh, non-customized Emacs through an SSH thing or NX term or something, something where you just didn't have all the, conven the, the conveniences of the, the traditional key sequences that you would expect. And, and so hitting, hitting something produced a control H sequence instead of, instead of backspacing the way that I thought it should. So it's a thing that, that I think is fading from from the culture, really. And I'm not arguing that it should... I think it's okay for it to fade from culture. I think it's fine that's, that a little joke like that is ephemeral. But I do want to highlight it, that it exists, because it is something that, that we'll probably stop doing eventually. Uh, most of us probably have stopped doing that. And, and certainly for me, when I do a, a pretend strike through, I very frequently do like the the HTML tag thing, you know, where you say like, "Oh, I really can't stand stri uh, uh, what is it? Angle bracket strike close angle bracket bracket Microsoft angle bracket slash strike angle bracket um, I don't know Apple whatever whatever you're you're trying to strike through. So instead of doing control H, control H, you just do a, a pretend HTML tag so people sort of see your logic exposed. It's simple. It's, it's probably a joke in itself that's getting old enough to stop doing anyway. Like the whole, the whole strike through joke of, of exposing your thoughts with, with, a, with, with visible deletion. But um, I don't know. Sometimes it works, and you just use whatever notation you think people are going to understand, I guess. 
So there you go. I mean, it, it really is so meta. It, that, that, that joke specifically is just so meta because it really does depend on people understanding and identifying with the process of, of, of delivering thoughts through typing. Okay, speaking of delivering thoughts, it's time for coffee. That's what's on my mind right now, and it should be on your mind as well. So go get yourself a cup, and we'll come back and finish up the show. Greek coffee here that I've made in just a normal pot. I didn't have a briki, so I just used um, my normal saucepan, and and it's quite good actually. It's it's really really. If I I urge you again, and I know I've done this before in a previous episode, I urge you again if you if you have not tried Greek or Turkish or Russian, whatever Eastern region you want to attribute it to. Uh, their coffee, it's it it is quite good. You should you should experience it at least once. Uh, no, you should experience it three or four times because, as I say, acquired taste. But you'll 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 grow to like it. I wanted to talk about bash loops, sort of because I I think that well, first of all, I think looping is really important to computing to effective computing, and second of all, because I feel like it's not something that I'm going to be able to cover in my overview of all the different software that comes on a computer because to try to cover bash effectively would be it would take it would be a whole episode it would be a a season on its own and i have done some stuff on bash in a previous season i think i did a whole season where it ended up being maybe it wasn't a whole season maybe it was like two episodes felt like a whole season two or three episodes where people were sending in their .bashrc files to me, and it was fantastic. Or And their bash aliases, that was really good. But um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the specifics of of writing a for loop and the different ways that you can do that. But before we go into why and how, no, before we go into how, let's talk about why, which would be, for me, and this may, might be specific to me, and you're certainly welcome to share your own reasons. But for me, one of the things that got me into, I guess, power computing, and by power computing, I just mean generically being more aware of how I interact with computers. That one of the things, and and by that I mean, I eventually got led to Linux. By that, I mean that I, at some point, wanted to to perform some action on a set of data that I had. And I felt, at that time in my life, I felt that I'd learnt enough about computers that 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 should be possible. And I investigated many different options and never did really find the the right way to do this action. I, I don't even remember what the action was. It was, I believe it was graphic. It was a graphic process. Probably... I don't really remember, to be honest, but I just remembered having a big stack of, of graphics, and I knew I needed to do 
a very consistent action to each one of those those graphic files could not figure out how to make it work just couldn't figure out an, an effective way to do let's say a hundred of the same things and I, I imagine these are vague memories but I imagine I probably sat down and tried you know tried okay well what if I did this by hand how long would that take how could I simplify that no way okay well what if what if I did it by hand mostly but had some kind of automated action within the the graphical the, the GUI app that I'm going to use to do this what if I had some kind of shortcut what if I optimized the heck out of the application so that at least that part I could simplify no no way not a hundred times and and so on and and not knowing a whole lot about how computers worked at that time I, I imagine I would have looked into some simple scripting and just wouldn't be able to figure it out especially since during the early development of of becoming someone who knows what a computer does a lot of times you're you're your basic frame of reference are GUI applications, right? That is a computer to you. That that is that's the only tool set you have available to you. You have the GUI applications that you are you're given on the computer or that you've purchased or more likely downloaded illegally from some site. That's what you have to work with. And so you don't know how to break into a GUI in order to tell it what you want to do without manually doing it with your mouse. And the idea that there might be a way to do the task without a GUI is like rocket science, or rather it's like magic. It, it, it's so far outside of the realm of, of what you understand, it just doesn't, you, you don't even investigate it. I mean, I think there's a time in, in a lot of people's computing life that, that programming itself is it means writing a GUI application. Like, that's that's all that programming could possibly be, is to end up with a GUI application. I think if you told me 10 years ago that, that, that I might be programming things that don't result in a graphical interface, I would... I would not have understood what you were even trying to tell me, much less who who you were talking about, because it certainly wouldn't have been me doing that. That seems beyond magic. There's just no context. I, like, what would you program if it didn't show you some visual on the screen? So when you're becoming... When you're, when you're trying to figure out computers and you're becoming this power user, I feel like one of the... Th the the one of the classic sort of appeals to that process one of the appealing parts about that is the fact that you can you can do actions in mass you can do batch actions how do you do that well technically you're doing a for loop and the i think the 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 for loop itself is generally pretty easy the hard part is figuring out which application you need to use in order to achieve the the the, the task, the actual the thing that you actually care about. Like, how are you going to do that? So those are two important components. One is how to loop over a hundred files, or two hundred files, or a thousand files, or heck, five files. 
And then the other component is okay, now that I now now that we know how to loop over them, what exactly is it we're doing? And obviously I can only answer one of those things in this in this content, which is how to do the for loop, because I don't know what the task you would want to do looks like. I don't know what that would be. It could be many, many different things. So let's start talking about for loops, and then we'll we'll talk about that second component a little bit. So first of all, if you're going to follow along, you would want to make an example directory, because you wouldn't want to necessarily do these kinds of tests, these, these scripting tests against real data that you care about. So make an example directory and then dump some some photos in there, let's say. And you can do different kinds of photos. PNGs, JPEGs, GIFs, TIFFs, wh whatever. Mix it up. So now you've got this, this folder called example. And if we do an ls on the example, then we get things like foo.jpg, bar.jpg, baz.png, and so on. And that gets listed however your terminal lists li li lists it, and that's fine. Um, at least on GNU Linux, you can do an ls space dash the number one, just dash one. So it looks like a minus one, but it's an ls minus one. ls space dash one. And, and that provides you a list of the contents of example of your example directory, one per line. And that's a useful useful little shortcut to know because in a way that's how your computer sees those the, the contents of that folder if your terminal uses a multi-column output or whatever that's not how your computer sees it your computer sees one line one, one, one item per line there's different ways to affect the output of ls you can do ls-m to get a comma separated list but the dash one i think is the most realistic like that's the that's the one that the computer sort of sees and you'll see why that's significant possibly a little bit in a little bit okay so let's say that we know that we have these files we have foo dot what did i say jpeg bar dot jpeg baz dot png right so we've got these files and we know that we need to process each of those files individually so that's one advantage to the dash one is that it 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 demonstrates to you how the computer is going to iterate over the contents of that example directory. It doesn't look at the directory as a collection of files. It looks one at a time at each item in that directory. It's it's a minimal minimal difference between ls and ls-1 and possibly if you only have three items in your example folder then you wouldn't really see any difference at all. But it's a significant one because you, we want to feed the for loop one item at a time. And the way that you do that is you do for um, f in asterisk. And I'll explain what that means right now. So for f is it's telling bash that we're doing a for loop for. And then the f in this case is a variable. It doesn't have to be f. It can be i. It can be in. It can be penguin. It can be anything you want for i in asterisk. It doesn't matter. But I'm going to use f because it's it's unique. So for f and then the word in, i in, asterisk. Now you may know from 
basic bash isms that the asterisk in bash not in everything but in bash stands it is a wild card character and it just means everything so you're saying for a variable f in everything and that's your first clause you close that first clause with a semicolon this is this is code right it doesn't necessarily make sense to to you as you read it but it makes sense to bash and what this is going to resolve to because bash is programmed this way is it is going to look at everything and it is going to select one item from everything and it is going to assign that item to the variable f this is very much like doing an ls dash one you're saying but but you but looking at it one line per time uh, at a time so that's what you're telling bash to do so you're saying do an ls dash one essentially look at each item individually and then let's process one item at a time and we'll We'll, we'll assign F that item, and that's how we'll keep track of where we are. And then you can do a semicolon, which ends that clause. Now there are variations on that clause, which we'll we'll talk about in a moment. But that's the sort of basic. Oh, I have a folder of stuff, and I want to process one file at a time. That's what. That's how you do it for F in asterisk. Perfect. Okay. So semicolon. Now, in Bash, you can continue on the same line, or you can hit Return. Bash won't start processing, because you've used this keyword for, and so it knows to expect a couple of other keywords. So in other words, you can do this as a classic one-liner, or you can do it almost like it'll look like a function of sorts. It'll, it'll look like a block of code in your terminal. You hit Return, and instead of getting a dollar sign prompt, as usual, you'll get a, an angle bracket prompt which is bash telling you okay well give me the rest of the four the for loop so it's kind of smart in that way so we'll do a simple action this is the action section and it starts with the keyword do do and we'll just do something really simple so do space file space dollar sign f and then a semicolon to close this clause this phrase and so the do file dollar sign f we're invoking the file command. Now this could be any command. It could be echo. It could be, um, it could be, what else would you do? I don't know. Convert. It could be any, any number of commands. So right now we're just doing file, which is just telling bash to run the file command against whatever item is in the dollar sign F. And then we terminate that. And then we use the keyword done. D-O-N-E. And now your, your for loop is finished. Hit return, and bash processes the, the, each file individually in the folder. So it takes the first one, foo.jpg, and it runs file against it, and it spits its output back out to your terminal. So you would see something like foo.jpg, jpeg image data, exif standard 2.2. And then you'd see bar.jpg with the same kind of output. And then you'd see baz.png, PNG image data for, uh, I don't know, 1920 by X1088 bit color RGB, non interlaced. The output of, of, of the kind of data that 
that a PNG file returns with the, the command file. So it's just a that's just introspection. It's just a harmless way to 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 sort of touch each file in that directory in a way that's completely non-destructive. So it's kind of useless unless you really need that kind of output, in which case it's really, really useful. Now, probably more useful would be something, let's say, like converting or, or maybe resizing. Let's resize some stuff. So in your example directory, you might make a temporary directory. So this is kind of addressing the second use case, or the second component of this, which is finding that command that does the thing that you want to do to lots of files. Using image magic is just an example, so it's it's a good one, but it's, it's definitely just an example. You, you might need something else done. You might need, I don't know, uh, sound volumes to be to be adjusted, or file formats to be, oh, well, I just said that, conversion. But yeah, you, you, it could be any number, anything that you can do on a command line, you can put in the do section of a for loop and then do that sequence of, of commands. So for instance, you could do a for f in asterisk semicolon do convert dollar sign f space dash scale 33% temp slash dollar sign f done. So what we've done there is, we actually haven't converted now that I'm thinking about it, um, what we've done there is we have said, okay, let's convert whatever's in the in the variable, dollar sign $f. The convert, convert is the command, it's an image magic command. So convert dollar sign $f, and then dash scale is resizing the image to 33% of its original size. And then saving that new thing that we've just created into our temporary directory that we've created in the example uh, directory and and naming it the same thing. So the convert just makes sure that it doesn't overwrite the file in place. Now you had to make a temporary directory because if you think about it if you're if you're making new files in a directory and then you're telling bash to process all files in the directory then there could be some kind of collision there. So making a temporary holding space for your for your processed data is usually a good idea so you don't accidentally process something multiple times or get yourself into some kind of inescapable infinite loop. Now it doesn't have to be just one thing either so as I'm saying anything you can do through a terminal you can stick it in the do section and have that thing done so for instance let's say that you're you're, you're uploading a bunch of photos to a server you might say um, okay, first I'm going to convert, I'm going to use the image magic convert command to scale it down 33%, and then I'm going to use SSH to copy it to my, my server, and then, and then, and then I'll trash the, the file that I've just uploaded, because maybe I don't need it anymore. Uh, I don't know if I would do all that in one command, but, but you could. So you might do for f in asterisk, or again, you could do something else, like for i in asterisk, do, and then convert dollar sign i dash scale 33%, temp dollar sign i, and then you do the SCP of temp dollar sign i onto clatu at example.com colon tilde slash public underscore html slash images, and then you would do trash temp dollar sign i and then you'd close that phrase with a semicolon and then you'd write done now you've got a, a, a fairly complex sequence of events uh, of events that happen 
on on each individual file. Now, is that the most is that the best way to do this process? No, probably not, because you're you, really the SCP and the the trashing step would probably you would want that outside of your loop. But you get the idea. The the idea being that if there's some process that you need to have happen to each file consistently, you can put it into a for loop, and it will it will process it will run through all the steps in the do uh, phrase before being done with that with that one file and then moving on to the next you can also as i said earlier the phrase for f in asterisk it doesn't have to be for f in asterisk it could be for f in asterisk asterisk dot jpeg and then do convert or whatever you want to do um, and that would limit that would limit the the process to only files ending in .jpg. So the wildcard you've you've limited the scope of of the for loop by limiting the the effectiveness of your wildcard. So before you just had an asterisk, no limits. If it's a file in this current directory, then process it. Now you're saying, well, it needs to be a file in this current directory, but it has to eat the, the last characters of this file needs to be .jpg or else ignore it. So you can limit limit your for loop in, in a couple of different ways like that. Um, another way that people could limit a for loop, and this is a little bit different because it's not even based on really files, um, is you can tell it, for instance, you can say for f in um, uh, curly bracket 0 dot dot 4 close curly bracket semicolon do echo dollar sign f semicolon done if you try that you get uh, 0 1 2 3 4 echoed to your terminal in a, a one one number per line so in other words what you've done there is you've used this this sequence the, the integer sequencer in bash the curly bracket 0 dot dot 4 meaning everything from 0 dot dot to four including including four um, so you've got f five numbers there zero through four and and you're assigning the results of that action to the variable in and then one at a time you're 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 processing you're processing in and in this case you're just echoing it so you're not doing anything but you could do that and i don't know when you would use that but you well, actually, I do know when you would use that. For instance, if you had a collection of photos or, or files that you needed to download with, let's say, wget, one way to do that, if they're if, if they're consistently named in sequence, one way that you can do that is to do a for in in or a for you know, i in 0 dot dot, I don't know, 9, do wget example.com slash... Uh, foo underscore zero uh, in dot jpeg and then semicolon done so you're, you're 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 swapping out the file name depending on which iteration of your loop you are currently on and so wget knows to, d to download a different one now there's some magic that you have to do if you breach out of single digits and start going into double digits you need to control how bash echoes the 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 variable and so on but you get the idea you can use just numbers 
to kind of define the the iteration number of your of your loop. Now you don't have to use a for loop, and and that's kind of what what prompted me to to think about this. That is that that there that the, the, the for loop is a built-in convention of Bash uh, and similar shells. TCSH has a convention for that as well, but it's called for each, and it's done a little bit differently. So in bash, for is a keyword. It is sort of a built-in function of bash. But if you don't have bash on you, or if you do, but for some reason don't want to use it or, or whatever, there are other ways to, to do this. For instance, find. Find is a great command. I think we've talked a little bit about it before on this show. I'm sure we'll talk about it more in, at some point. But it, it ha- kind of has a built-in iterate, I- iterator as well, which um, the, the easy version of that is the, the dash exec command. There are some other ways to do it, actually, but, but we'll just talk about exec. Uh, I mean, one way is GNU Parallel, which we've, talk- we've definitely talked about GNU Parallel on this show. So that's a really useful um, method of of doing sort of iteration over a collection of files. But and, and find though would be sort of the for f in asterisk clause. That that's what that would that's the function find would serve. So for instance, you might say find uh, example or, or or dot if you're in the example directory dash name quote, asterisk, jpeg, close quote. Now, if you hit return after that, then it would find all the PNG files in the path that you have, you've stated, whether it's the example folder or your current directory with a dot or, or some path to some other directory. That's easy. It's finding all of the files that end in asterisk dot PNG, or rather asterisk anything, uh, and then PNG at the end. You can turn that into a, f- a loop though, with the dash exec option. So if you do find dot dash name, quote, asterisk png, close quote, dash exec, and then convert, curly bracket, curly bracket, dash scale 33%, and then temp slash curly bracket to curly bracket, and then a backslash semicolon to end that, to end that phrase. Now you have told find to find all the PNGs in the in the the path that you've defined, and then one at a time, because that's what exec is programmed to do. It knows, okay, we're going to process one at a time. We're going to take the first result. We're going to run it through convert. The curly bracket, curly bracket, the empty curly brackets is find's method or exec's method method of indicating that variable. So instead of saying for f in, we're just saying curly bracket, curly bracket. It's a little bit unsettling to see empty curly brackets just hanging out there for, for no reason, but but that's the stand-in for the variable. So, Or that is the variable. It's the stand-in for whatever result you got from find. So convert this thing, scale it down to 33%, dump it into my temporary folder that I've created previously, naming it the same thing, curly bracket, curly bracket. So whatever we find, we're just dumping, we're converting it and dumping it into the temporary directory. And that's the find. That's a find loop. As I say, there are other ways to do the same 
the same thing. You can use find, you can use parallel, you can use for loops. There are probably even other ways that I'm not thinking of, but it's an important principle. I think it's a, one of those really entry-level processes that a computer user can can learn, and it serves as kind of a gateway into into more and better programming. So if someone wants to learn this stuff, you or a friend of yours, I think for loops is a great way to start. I really do. It can be a dangerous way to start. You have to be careful, and you always want to make sure to make, you know, d d don't don't do destructive for loops until you're really good at them. And even then, safeguards are important. Temporary directories are, are your friend, that sort of thing. Believe me, we've all done it. We've 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 done a for loop to rename a file and then accidentally renamed a file over itself a hundred times or something stupid like that or renamed all the files in the directory to one file so it's just overwriting itself a hundred times not a good idea not a pleasant sensation once you realize you've done it so don't do that give yourself a break make temporary directories but uh, it's a powerful thing it it unlocks a lot of potential to the uh, of a computer and it's it's one of those little things that linux just kind of grants a user it's just a little bonus that no one really ever... We don't really think about it. We just take it for granted. Um, so don't take it for granted. Use it. Appreci appreciate it. Put it to good use. And teach others how to do it. Because that's, that's what it's all about. Thanks for listening to uh, this week's episode. I will talk to you next time. listening to the GNU World Order AUGcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AUGcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. region right here, which is the hippocampal region, and including the amygdaloid area, one can get all types of experiences, such as the release of dream-like experiences into the waking state, a modification of memory, even partial amnesia, and a confabulation, that is, the filling in of that amnesia or that blank space with fantasy. And that fantasy is a function of what the person believes or has been taught or has experienced.